Welcome to Future Hindsight. I'm your host, Mila Atmos. Each week, I speak with citizen changemakers who spark civic engagement in our society. Our guest today is Marcia Johnson-Blanco. She's the co-director of the Voting Rights Project at the Lawyers Committee for Civil Rights Under Law. Her work focuses on programs and advocacy, and she leads the Election Protection Project, which is the nation's largest nonpartisan voter protection program. She also oversees the work of the National Commission on Voting Rights. Everything comes down to voting. There's a Supreme Court decision that I like to quote, which says the right to vote is preservative of all other rights. If you care about health care, if you care about criminal justice, if you care about education, the climate, any issue you care about, the way you get to address that is through the ballot box. If there are barriers that are being erected to prevent you from doing that, that's when the system all starts to fall apart. We'll be talking about making your vote count and revisit the Shelby County versus Holder decision about the Voting Rights Act. We discuss why voting is foundational to the infrastructure that supports democracy. It is the primary mechanism by which we make our voices heard. Let's listen in. Thank you for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. One of the questions that I have for you is kind of philosophical, and it's about how voting is related to democracy. Why is voting, in your mind, critical to a functioning democracy? So when you look at democracy, it's the voice of the people being heard. And here in the U.S., that voice comes through our representatives, and we get our representatives through voting. Voting is a critical part of our democracy. And unfortunately, in this country, we at times make it very difficult for people to engage and have a voice in our democracy. You are working on the Election Protection Project to help ensure that all voters have equal opportunity to vote and have their vote count. What trends did you notice since you first started working with the Election Protection Project? Election protection started right after the 2000 election. And what we saw in the 2000 election is that there were people who were prevented from voting because of procedures and practices that were put in place by the Secretary of State at the time. And as an organization that was primarily engaged in litigation, the Lawyers Committee, as well as other civil rights organizations, determined that there needed to be a program to help voters in real time and on giving everyone the resources that they need to engage in the voting process. It's from the beginning of the process with regards to voter registration and how to register to vote, when to register to vote, ensuring you're still on the rolls to being able to cast a ballot. And more importantly, and this is something that was very prominent in 2000 when we began, is not just voting, but ensuring that the vote that you cast will be counted. We provide support at every step along the way. This includes the 866-HOUR-VOTE hotline, uh, which voters can call to get information about the process as well as to report problems they're having. Uh, We recruit and train thousands of volunteers, both 
uh, lawyers and grassroots volunteers to be able to assist voters. And we also have on election day field programs in 30 states where the help is there in person. So in terms of protecting the vote, meaning helping people figure out how to vote, getting to the polls, but also making sure that the vote counts. How different is it today? Has it gotten much, much worse? And if so, how exactly is it worse? So I can answer that question by using Texas as an example. What happened in 2013 in the Shelby County decision, the Supreme Court determined that Section 5 of the Voting Rights Act was no longer operational because it struck down the formula that determined which jurisdictions with a history of discrimination in voting had to submit voting changes prior to them being implemented. In 2012, Texas passed a very restrictive voter ID law, which essentially determined what precise ID you would need in order to be able to vote. Texas determined that a concealed carry gun permit was an acceptable voter ID, but a student ID wasn't. And then if you look at the demographics of who's more likely to have a concealed carry gun permit and, you know, the demographic of students, um, you can see where the legislature was essentially picking and choosing who can vote and who couldn't. Texas submitted this voter ID law first to the Department of Justice that determined it was discriminatory against minority voters, and then it submitted it to the district court in D.C. The district court in D.C. determined that the law was discriminatory. And so Texas couldn't implement or use their voter ID law during the November 2012 presidential elections. Then you have the Shelby County decision in June of 2013. And the same day the Shelby County decision was released, Texas determined that it was going to implement that voter ID law that was found to be discriminatory. And so what we needed to do then was to sue Texas under another provision of the Voting Rights Act, Section 2. Section 2 of the Voting Rights Act is its general um, anti-discriminatory provision. It allows you to challenge discriminatory laws. After many years and a lot of money, we were successful with the Fifth Circuit finding that the Texas ID law was discriminatory. But in the meanwhile, there were elections happening where people who didn't have the ID that Texas required, who were eligible voters, and they were unable to vote. So the Shelby County decision, in effect, is allowing discriminatory voting practices that before were curtailed by the Voting Rights Act to be implemented. And as a result, they're eligible voters who are being prevented from being able to vote. In addition to voter ID laws, what are the most pervasive kinds of voter disenfranchisement laws or measures that we've seen in other states, perhaps? What we're finding is not just particular laws that are preventing voters from being able to vote, but the interpretation of existing laws. We have the National Voter Registration Act, and one of the provisions of the National Voter Registration Act is list maintenance. So that is, if a voter dies or moves out of the jurisdiction, 
then that voter would be removed from the rolls. But what we're finding is that there are certain states and jurisdictions that are aggressively enforcing the list maintenance provision of the NVRA and purging voters who are still in their communities and who are still eligible to vote. So there was the recent Supreme Court case which challenged Ohio's interpretation of the list maintenance provision that they would remove you from the voting rules for not voting. Now, the NVRA is very clear that you're not to be removed from the voter registration rules for not voting. And there were advocates who challenged this law. It was successful in the lower courts, and it made its way to the Supreme Court. And the Supreme Court determined that Ohio could continue removing voters from the voting rules for not voting, because even though the National Voter Registration Act said you couldn't do that, Ohio was not removing voters for not voting. They were beginning the process of removing voters for not voting, and that was permissible. The NVRA is very explicit about what the list maintenance process should be. If a jurisdiction determines that you may no longer be eligible to vote in that jurisdiction, they're supposed to send you a letter saying, are you still here? Do you still want to vote in this jurisdiction? And then wait for two federal elections before removing voters from the rolls. And we're finding that there are jurisdictions that aren't following that process. And we're also finding that voters are showing up and finding out that they're in the process of being removed from the voting rolls, even though they haven't moved themselves. So people, when they think about voting barriers, they think about explicit laws that prevent voters from voting or having certain laws that restrict who can vote. But we also need to look at how jurisdictions are implementing the laws that are also on the books as well. There is a lot of misunderstanding in the general public about voter disenfranchisement. But I think a lot of people don't understand this at all. And they think that voter fraud is real and that the barriers to voting are negligible or easily surmountable. To people who really don't follow voting rights and voting problems, what would you like to say? I think when people say, oh, there's voter fraud and we need to restrict voting, they're thinking about people who are trying to game the system. But it's well documented that our system has certain processes in place that would make it very difficult for me to say vote in three different jurisdictions at the same time and to get away with it. There's this very active narrative about voter fraud and therefore we need to put in place barriers. But I think you need to look at the barriers that you do decide to put in place to address this mythical voter fraud. Is it keeping eligible voters from being able to vote? When people are in favor of particular barriers, let's look at who is being excluded. We are essentially a 50-50 country, right, in terms of who we support for either party. And so I only need to create barriers for a really small percentage of folks on either side of that 50-50 balance sheet in order to successfully affect an election. And so the barriers are not meant to exclude 
a large percentage of people from being able to vote. But those who they do exclude, it's very significant and it does affect the outcome of elections. In your estimation, how many eligible voters are prevented from voting in general? It's generally a hard question to answer because the laws are particular to a state. Yes. <laughs> For example, in 2018, Georgia decided to implement an exact match process. And so there were as many as 50,000 voters during the gubernatorial um, elections in Georgia who were caught up in a process where the state determined that if there was any information on my voter registration form that differed from the driver's license database, then they weren't going to put me on the rolls. So it was as specific as whether I put a hyphen on my voter registration form because I have a hyphenated last name. It's a hard question to quantify in terms of raw numbers. But I think when you add it all up, you would see that there's hundreds of thousands and, and maybe more of eligible voters who aren't able to vote. And I should say people who want to vote, <laughs> because the other issue that we're facing is that unfortunately, we have generally low turnout elections. And so you already have the people who are disaffected and don't even participate. And then for those who want to participate, when you put barriers in front of them, you're even making it harder for those who want to engage to have a voice. Since you mentioned the 2018 midterm election, which by all measures has exceeded expectations in terms of voter turnout. How do you explain that success? What are the most effective measures to help voters vote? One of the things I do want to note about the 2018 midterm elections is that there was a significant and historic turnout, and that followed a historic low turnout in 2014. Mm-hmm. And I think that all comes down to the candidates and who's running, who's motivating the voters, what message are they responding to. We also saw in 2008 and in 2012 when President Obama was running that it really motivated young people to engage and how effective the parties are in turning out their base and reaching out to the base and engaging them in the elections process. When I talk about voting and why um, citizens should engage in the voting process, I really try to focus them on local elections, because while we've had significant turnouts in 2018 in the midterms and um, some of the gubernatorial elections, we still have a lot of work to do regarding local elections. And local elections are really the elections where what your mayor or your local prosecutor or your local sheriff is going to do or your local school board that really affects your day-to-day life. We still have a long way to go in having robust turnout in those elections. I will say, as an average person, it's very difficult to understand which local politician stands for what because it doesn't really get covered, you know, and it's very difficult sometimes to parse which candidate represents my values, what could the average voter do to expand access or to make voting more successful for our society? 
Yeah, that is a very big question. And first, I'll say I agree with you. It is really hard to find information regarding local elections. A consequence related to that is that we no longer have um, as local newspapers or the city newspapers as we used to. I remember looking at my local um, city gazette to determine <laughs> what the different local candidates stood for. And I would say what has replaced the local paper are the social media platforms. And I know the uh, social media is sort of demographically segmented. So, you know, Facebook, it's a certain demographic audience that you're reaching. But I do think the information is out there. We just have to look harder to get the information. There are organizations such as like the League of Women Voters who do the candidate questionnaires. And so it's finding out who in your community is paying attention to what the candidates are saying and getting access to that information. And then directly reaching out to a particular candidate you may be interested in and saying, I want to know more about what you think on a particular issue. How do I get that information? Yeah, good advice. You know, when we disenfranchise so many people, or any at all, frankly, in our voting process, how does it hurt our democracy? What are we losing? Oh, we lose so much. When we have processes in place that make it difficult for those who want to engage in our democracy, then we have a disaffected population who's not really engaging in all of the institutions and processes that a democracy needs in order to run. And then you also have people who are very apathetic. I I face this a lot in my work because I go out there and I give presentations on the potential barriers to your vote. And more importantly, here is how you can overcome them. And then I get the question, but why should I vote anyway? And that's one of the saddest questions. If you don't vote, then your democracy and the decisions it makes is really being determined not by the majority, but by a few. What makes a democracy successful is that you have the institutions and infrastructures that really make it easy for the people to have a voice, to engage, and really to feel heard. Because If I'm engaging, but I don't feel that I'm being heard, what people tend to do is they just step away from the process and they don't engage. And that's where I think democracies end up getting into trouble. Yeah, I agree. There is very little in terms of holding our elected officials accountable. And it's in part because not a lot of people vote. So then if they aren't doing what people want them to do. Nobody's voting them out of office. When we think about 2020, when you think about 2020, what are the biggest threats you anticipate in our presidential election? Before I answer that, I should say to pick up on the point that you were just making Mm -hmm. is that it's not just about voting, right? (laughs) Because I think people think, oh, I voted, my work is done. But you raised a very important point about holding your representatives accountable, not just through elections, but engaging in those town halls. When you show up at their meetings, they're going to be listening to you. Yes. Politicians respond to who is complaining and what they're complaining about. So if you're the only person in the room complaining about something you care about, that's where you're going to get action. 
in terms of the challenges for 2020, one of the biggest things is that we no longer have the full protections of the Voting Rights Act. Mm -hmm. And so there are jurisdictions that were covered under Section 5, such as, you know, your Georgias, your Louisianas, your Texas, even some counties in New York, where they had to give notice about voting changes that were happening. So what we found recently is that these jurisdictions are closing or consolidating polling places. And then the purges that are happening where jurisdictions are removing voters from the voting rolls and the voters may not be aware of that. So one of the things that we with Election Protection and the Lawyers Committee are going to be focused on in 2020 to counteract some of these things is having a very robust voter education campaign because I really do believe that having an empowered voter about the process can really help to overcome some of these um, barriers that I mentioned as well. You're clearly very passionate about voting rights and the need for free, fair and secure elections. Where does this passion come from? I got involved with election protection in 2004. And that came from witnessing the long lines in Florida in 2000 and seeing people who were so eager to participate in our democracy being turned away. And the more that I've gotten involved over these past, you know, 15 plus years, the more it's really strengthened my firm conviction that in order for a democracy to survive and succeed, it has to have the infrastructure in place that give people the voice to engage in the democracy. And when you undermine that infrastructure, you undermine the voice of the people and it could really weaken a democracy. I am an immigrant whose family came to the U.S. because of the promise of what the American democracy stands for. It's something that was, you know, ingrained even before I got here about what it means. And I see the possibilities of America and what it can do. It happens through the ballot box. That's how change has happened. And everything comes down to voting. There's a Supreme Court decision that I like to quote, which says, the right to vote is preservative of all other rights. If you care about health care, if you care about criminal justice, if you care about education, care about the climate, any issue you care about, the way you get to address that is through the ballot box. If there are barriers that are being erected to prevent you from doing that, that's when the system all starts to fall apart. I uh, <laughs> really very passionate about people having a voice in the democracy and ensuring that we are steadfast in protecting the infrastructures that give them that voice. That's a beautiful story. Thank you for sharing it. And thank you for your service in making voting rights something that really has legs for everybody in this country. Looking into the future, what makes you hopeful? You know, what makes me hopeful are young people. <laughs> We have young people who are very engaged in the issues 
of the day. You know, one of my goals is to bring them along to how voting can help them to address those issues of the day. They're definitely a demographic that cares very deeply and are very concerned about what the future holds. I do find promise in them and the way they want to engage and help. I think if we can make the case to them about how that engagement in the voting process can be transformational, they can make a tremendous difference in bringing about really positive change in the future. Yes, totally agreed. Thank you very much for being on the show. Thank you for everything that you do. Well, thank you so much for having me and for having this discussion. I'm so grateful for Marcia, her organization, and the many other people who are toiling in the same field of voting rights and voter protection. Many of us, especially those who are not active or inconsistent with voting, go through life without really knowing how much is at stake and how much work is required just to maintain the status quo. Despite her daily, deep-in-the-trenches work of fighting for a right to vote in the face of discriminatory practices and restrictive interpretations of existing laws, Marcia's enthusiasm and confidence in American democracy and the American voter is unshaken. When the infrastructure that gives people the voice to engage is secure, democracy can thrive as citizens It's our duty to exercise that right, especially on the local level. Those elections determine who is in charge of the government that most affects our daily lives. Know what's going on in the local news and local races and make your voices heard. Next week, our guest is Seth Flaxman. He's a co-founder of Democracy Works, which is a nonpartisan, nonprofit organization dedicated to make voting a simple, seamless experience for all Americans. We'll be talking some more about voting, the more mundane reasons why we don't have higher participation rates, and how his organization is working to increase turnout and make voting fit our lives. Between like 15 and 60 percent of non-voters in a given election aren't voting for a dozen different process issues. The biggest ones being like too busy, forgot, didn't know, like missed a deadline but also like weather, disability, didn't have transportation. And so all of these things sort of add up. Why do we vote the way that we do if it doesn't make any sense? We are only voting on a Tuesday because that was convenient in the 1700s. Sunday was for church. Monday, you travel to the county seat. Tuesday, you would vote in the town square and you'd be back home for market day on Wednesday. And so the real tradition in the U.S. is make voting convenient, like make it fit the way we live. And now the majority of non-voters are just saying it's not convenient. It doesn't fit the way we live anymore. Until next time, stay engaged. I'm Mila Atmos. Thank you for listening to Future Hindsight. The executive producer and host of this program is Mila Atmos. The audio producer and music composer is Peter Fedak. The associate producer is Miriam Zumbu. Additional production by Brooke Sayan. Listen to us online at futurehindsight.com or your favorite streaming service. Mm-hmm.